And thank you, Eitan Run, for joining us at uh, the Sunset Series, a program of Tribe Tel Aviv. Eitan is currently on base. Uh, he was called up um, a few weeks ago. And uh, a little background is that he was in combat uh, with a medical situation arising a few years ago. He's now in, uh, in a base where he, he uses his fluent Arabic to help the Israeli army. So uh, it's probably one of those situations I could tell you what I did, but then I'd have to kill you. So uh, so we won't ask you what you do specifically, but we know we thank you and know that you're helping the Jewish people and uh, and the IDF, and we're all in it together. And Eitan is a, a very popular tour guide, as well as public speaker. He speaks in many of the programs for young students here in Israel and tours around. He lives in the Gush. And uh, we're very happy to have you here. And thank you for taking your time out on the base to jump on. And the theme is join the battle. How uh, Eitan's byline was how we can be even more important than the IDF in the battle for Israel. I toned it down to say we can be as important, but... Um, We'll hear what he has to say and uh, learn about how we can get involved. And of course, we know that uh, the with the rise of anti-Semitism all over the world, uh, the media bias, uh, the universities in the United States, um, Arab countries who are supposed to be our allies saying a very different line. Um, the world is aflame and we're in the middle of it and we need to mobilize. Uh, us who are not fighting physically, but Eitan is going to share with us how we can battle for Israel, make a difference, and have an impact. So thank you, Eitan. Okay, um, I unmuted myself. Uh, first of all, thank you very, very much. Um, do, you, do you guys hear me? Just make like a thumbs up if you hear me, like on, on the screen. Yeah, okay, good. Um, I'm, I'm obviously not on Wi-Fi. I'm on a base. Um, and I'm going to try to speak um, a little quickly because I'm trying to jam a lot of things in uh, to a very short amount of time. Um, just one apology. I've probably had uh, COVID, I don't know, for the 10th time, uh, th like three, four months ago. And I'm having like a long COVID response where I'm feeling this constant itch in my throat. And I've been like uh, coughing, um, I don't know, <coughs> sorry, um, like for the, like, the past two months and it's annoying. Um, so I apologize, um, but here and there, it's, it's probably gonna happen. Um, and, um, by the way, Jonathan, to your question, like, what do I do? I'm not like doing hyper secretive stuff. I mean, I can't tell you the specific places where soldiers are and they're going and their plans, obviously in the future, but, um, like uh, just gathering intelligence, different, uh, things that different people in, in our unit see and putting it onto a log so that the other soldiers there can see the same thing. Like if they say we found a bomb over here, we write it on the computer. So all the other soldiers know that, that, that building is booby trapped. Uh, here and there, they knock into things that need somebody who speaks Arabic or reads Arabic to to read and translate on spot. Like, I don't know, for example, if we pick up a phone call that says uh, there are soldiers of Hamas or Hamas terrorists are waiting in, I don't know, uh, the um, uh, pediatric, pediatric uh, uh, complex of a hospital. So they actually need somebody to read the signs. Where's the pediatric complex in the hospital? So um, um, they read the signs and tell them, you know, go down the corridor, take a left and you'll find the terrorists. Um, so very, not, not, not hypersensitive, uh, stuff, but, uh, very practical and very important. Um, 
Um, I'm going to start. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to dive right in. Um, I think that everybody here realizes that we and the Palestinians have a conflict. Um, call them Arabs, call them Palestinians. I don't really, I'm not getting into the, um, uh, how do you say, the to the, um, you know, different uh, way of defining different things. And I, real, I, I think we all realize that every Palestinian or Arab that wants to hurt a Jew, he could do it. He can use a rocket, he can use a gun, he can use an RPG, and he can use a truck. Um, every knife that can cut salads uh, can also be used to stab people. So we have a, a, a big problem with Palestinian terrorism. And um, we have a, um, uh, again, with Hamas, they use, they use rockets and RPGs, but it could be Israeli Arabs using trucks. Um, and, and, and it's a lot more holistic, it's a lot more global than than just us looking at one little thing called Gaza, because the same exact thing that happened in Gaza could have happened in the West Bank tomorrow or by Israeli Arabs in Ramla and Lud. And we all saw that happening in, in, in May of uh, 2021. Um, so so <laughs> if we're trying to involve and deal with this problem, how do we deal with it? Um, I want to say something that I believe we're all mature enough. And again, in, in one minute, and then we can actually dive, dive in. Um, anybody, anybody who wants to hurt you again can easily do it. And the motivation will always be there. And most big problems in the world are actually all big problems in the world. We love to look at it like a zero sum game. Like what's your solution? Like either do this or, or do that. And if you don't have a suggestion that can abolish something the whole way, people tell you, oh, so you don't have a good suggestion. So you shouldn't, uh, you, you know, you, you, we should go to somebody else. And, and that's, in my opinion, <laughs> that's a very childish approach because most big problems don't have a, there, it's not a zero sum game. Like there's no solution for almost all the big problems in life, like crime. There's no suggestion for crime. There always will be a criminal out there. You're not going to fire all policemen because there's always going to be a criminal out there. You can't solve it 100%. You can say, okay, I want to bring crime down to a level I can run through the park jogging without being afraid of being mugged. Um, there will always be poverty in the world. I want to bring poverty down to a level that I can live with. So there always is a problem and there always will be a problem of terrorism. I want to bring it down to a level I can live with. And the, re the way you do that is it, ability is always going to be there. You take away the motivation. Now, they'll always be motivated to hurt you. Again, it doesn't matter if it's religious or national or any other re reason, um, they'll always be motivated. Um, but you can make a counter motivation, or in other words, you know, use sticks and carrots, or, or, <laughs> or the word that every um, Israeli politician uses is uh, deterrence, hartaah. You'll hear every single Israeli uh, official using that word, hartaah, hartaah. We need to it's deter not, Hamas. Yeah. What? Maybe we can mute um, every. Yeah. Um, and um, we, we need to we need to deter them. And, and here's my question. If the IDF is so much stronger than Hamas. And when I say so much, I mean, we, we are one trillion times stronger. Um, we have an air force. And they don't even have one tank. I mean, it's not it's it's like a match between Mike Tyson, the heavyweight uh, world champion and, and an infant. I mean, that, that's, that's like the, that's sort of the power game here. We are one trillion times stronger. And the million dollar question is, <laughs> why are we not, why are we not using our strength? 
And, um, and the answer that every single politician, I wrote a book about this in the beginning of COVID. I, I never published it, but I have it in the PDF file on my computer. Um, that like, if you listen to every single interview and every single, with every single politician and every single chief of staff and every single general and ex-generals and heads of intelligence and everybody, <laughs> it boils down to the world. The world won't let us. Meaning if, if Hamas tomorrow wants to attack Israel or Palestinians in Ramla or in Akko or in the West Bank <laughs> want to attack Israel and Israel could easily deter them, they wouldn't attack. Like if, if we and the Palestinians lived on Mars, I mean, this conflict would be resolved a long time ago because they wouldn't shoot a rocket at me. They wouldn't shoot a rocket at me if, 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 if they know that I can deter them, if they know that I can completely, and I'm not talking about doing it with weapons. I'll give a few other examples which are nonviolent or less violent, but they wouldn't do it. If you'd be sitting on a train, sitting next to, again, Mike Tyson, you probably wouldn't poke his eye out or slap him unless you knew his hands are tied. Like, because our hands are tied, they let themselves do it. But they wouldn't do it if they, if they, if they, if they knew our hands are not tied. If they knew that we can crush them, they wouldn't do it. So the question is, what's, what's that zip tie that's tying our hands? What is... What is that thing? And, and the answer is, again, it's, it, it, it's, I don't think it's my answer. I think it's every single politician and every single army official. And you can go 30 years back in interviews. Like I did this for the book, but you guys can do it yourselves. It boils down to, oh, we could do this, but the world won't let us. We can, I don't know, carpet bomb Gaza, but the world won't let us. We cannot let in gasoline into Gaza or food and put them on a full blockade until they bring the kidnapped people back. But the world won't let us. Like it boils down to the world. So the question is, I mean, it's, it's weird to say, but the Israeli-Arab conflict is not in Gaza and it's not in Jenin and it's not in Hebron. It's in Washington, D.C. It's in New York um, and it's in Heidelberg and Munich and in London. And by the way, that's why, Jonathan, when I said that, 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 the, that the people who are here or the people that will listen to this in the future, they're the, they're the frontline soldiers on this front, because the IDF cannot do anything without worldwide legitimacy. It's not that you are as important as the IDF. The IDF has 25 times more power, times more power than they need. It's not the power that they need. It's you guys, that you guys give the IDF the power to do what it's doing. Like, you're not as important as the IDF. You're more important than the IDF. Now... I too was a combat soldier for, for the past 17 years until I lost my hearing and I became uh, you know, a, 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 a hearing intelligence, not, not non-combatant. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> the combat soldiers because they'll be the first ones uh, that God forbid might leave widows and orphans or come back injured or lose their lives, God forbid. I appreciate them. It's called in Hebrew, I appreciate those that put their lives in, you know, in danger. But the people, they're not the important people. You guys are the important people. I have 10 times more than what I need in the IDF. What I don't have enough of is people fighting the actual campaign, which is cut those zip ties, release those zip tie <coughs> from the hands of the IDF, 
and therefore they can they can deter Hamas. And again, if if we can really do it, if we have a credible threat, it doesn't mean we have to use it. Uh, but I got news for you: the, the kidnappees can be on the Israeli border with a care package tomorrow. If the IDF could, for example, t- say to one and a half million people in Gaza, "We are starving you. We are not letting in any food, any I don't know medicines, any anything until you bring those kidnapped people back." Those kidnapped people will be back within a week. And by the way, we can, I don't know, for example, say we'll bring an artillery battery and just bomb down one house after another after another, killing everybody until those kidnappees are back. And by the way, we can do it in nonviolent ways. I'll give you an example. We can close the Temple Mount um, <laughs> to Palestinian Muslims and say, hey, Muslims of the world, don't be angry. If you're a Muslim from Abu Dhabi, um, you can come, or from Bahrain, you can come, or if you're a Muslim from New York, you can come to Harabai, to Temple Mount, no problem. Um, but if you are a Palestinian Muslim, you cannot. Within one week, when they start seeing pictures of rabbis on the Temple Mount with their tzitzit and kippahs and, and the Temple and cats and policemen and a few evangelical Christians, they will, that hurts them more than dying. Now, we've seen that for the past, we've seen that for the past 20 years, bombing them and killing them <coughs> does not deter them. Like they don't mind dying as Bernard Lewis, Professor Bernard Lewis, one of the leading Middle East professors once said, if you take a person who wants to die and you tell him I'm going to kill you, that's not a deterrent. That's an inducement. Like these people want to die. You're going to threaten a guy who wants to die by saying I'm going to kill you. That's, that's not a deterrent. That's an inducement. Um, and, and bombing real estate, I'll, I'll call it bombing houses. <laughs> I've tried that for the past 20 years. I see they don't care. We have to find other creative ways and we have enough smart people thinking of enough creative ways to deter them. And the fact is we're not doing it. So again, that leads me back to my question, why are we not doing it? Now, I'm going to say something weird. I don't know how many doctors are in the crowd or how many doctors uh, will listen to this uh, podcast in the future, but the most important thing a doctor can do is diagnosis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this well. I'm an Israeli, but diagnosis or diagnosis it's, it's the most important part in curing a problem. Let's say, for example, two patients might come to you with very similar symptoms, but one has HIV and one has leukemia. Like if, if you misdiagnose a guy with HIV virus because the symptoms look just like leukemia and you give him chemotherapy, for example, you're not going to save his life. You're going to kill him even faster. So you have to diagnose why does the world care about us? Because if you don't diagnose it correctly, your odds of your odds of uh, making things better are very, very slim. So let's analyze <laughs> if the, our problem is the world, that they keep shoving their every, super hyper involved in what's going on obsessively in the media and obsessively in the world political arena. And we see Israel has 20 condemnations from the UN and a year when Libya gets one or Syria gets one, North Korea gets one or Iran. I mean, <laughs> we see the hypocrisy. We see how silly it is. But the question is, why is it like that? Now, many people assume that the reason it's like that is because of anti-Semitism. And they say, oh, they just, it's sort of like a dissing, I don't know, a joker to pull out and say, oh, the world is anti-Semitic. I'll explain to you guys why I don't think that is the case. Meaning maybe 5% or 7% of the reason the world is so involved in Israel is anti-Semitism. But sorry, but I don't think it's the major reason. I'll tell you why. East Europe is a lot more anti-Semitic than uh, West Europe. 
but I see Western European countries are the ones who are involved in Israel and not Eastern European countries, meaning Israel <coughs> might show up on the front page of the Guardian newspaper, the BBC or the CNN. I don't show up on the front pages of newspapers in Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic or Lithuania. And the people there are very, very, very anti-Semitic, um, even more than in Germany and France or in Holland. But ironically, I mean, if the reason that they don't, that that they're that they're hyper obsessively involved with Israel was anti-Semitism, I'd be on the front pages of a newspaper in 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 Croatia, and in Hungary, and not just a newspaper in Germany and France and Holland. So, in, again, anti-Semitism might be an ingredient, but I don't think it's the major ingredient. Um, many people say, "Oh, the Palestinians are perceived as the underdog." I'll tell you why I don't accept that so much because every conflict in the world and there are dozens of more conflicts every one of them has a underdog like china and tibet there's an underdog western sahara and uh and, and morocco has an underdog and 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 every conflict of every tribal conflict in in africa has a underdog so why do they care about one underdog the palestinians not about 20 other underdogs in every other conflict so I don't think it's that. Many people say, oh, it's because of Arab oil, that if we upset the Arabs, they won't sell oil to the Arab world, to the Western world that much. And that's why we're relevant for them. I don't think that's the reason, because the number one supplier of oil in the world is the United States today, not Saudi Arabia anymore, meaning the Western world is becoming less and less reliant on Arab oil um, as opposed to they, what they were in the 90s, for example. So if it's not Arab oil, not anti-Semitism, and uh, not underdogness, um, what is it? Um, so here's my here here's my analysis. I think I'm right. If you want me later in the questions, um, uh, you can um, you can ask me later in the questions how I can. Maybe I'll even have enough time to say it. I I I can sort of prove that maybe I'm wrong, but. Bibi Netanyahu agrees with me and Naftali Bennett agrees with me and Lieberman agrees with me and and the ch chiefs of staff. Meaning, maybe I'm wrong, but if I'm wrong, so is Lieberman, so is Bibi, so is Benny Gunn, so is Yair Lapid, so is Naftali Bennett, and and so is, uh, I don't know, uh, Yariva Levine. I mean, I, I'll, I, I think I can prove this beyond doubt in my opinion. Um, so why do they care? Um, there was a book written by Samuel Huntington, like I think 30 years ago, called The Clash of Civilizations. I think you have to be blind not to see that we are in a civilizational clash between the Western world and the Muslim slash Arab world. Um, even if you don't see it that way and you're a Westerner and your name is Pierre and you live in Paris and you don't feel that way, it doesn't matter if you feel that way. Um, Ismail or Khaled or Mustafa in London or in Paris, they do feel that way. And Uriya Shavit, a researcher from the Israel from Tel Aviv University, wrote a few books about this. And the, the little booklets that they give out in different mosques, try to in, in Europe and in, in Malmo and in Paris, he's trying to he, people are writing to to Muslims living in in Europe. I don't know if you know, but it's it's not halakhically permissible in Islam to live under a, um, <coughs> religiously, it's not allowed to live under a place that is, that is non-Muslim. I mean, look at how girls in Paris dress or whatever. It's terrible. You can't do it. 
So they're looking for a justification for themselves. And the justification, religious just justification was, oh, you are here on a mission. Your job is, <laughs> is to um, make the um, Europe see the light in Islam, become more Muslim, and be soldiers for the Islamic cause in the West. Meaning I have millions and millions and millions of Muslims in the West that see themselves as soldiers of the Muslim world slash cause in, in the, in the um, what's it called, in, in the Western world. And that's why I'm relevant, because the potential, the, in order for Israel to deter Hamas, for example, or any Palestinian terrorists, by definition, we have to be disproportionate. Because if we're proportionate, it doesn't achieve deterrence. I mean, you slap me once, I slap you again. Maybe that doesn't deter me. I, I don't mind. I hate you that much that I'm willing to get a slap as long as I can let you get a slap. But if you tell me, hey, if I tell you, I'll, if you slap me, I'll burn down your car, then maybe you care about your car more than you care about slapping me. Meaning we have to be disproportionate. And what Western Europe sees is that the potential of violence it, it, by their own Muslims as a reaction to this is so great that it is terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying, terrifying, terrifying. No, sorry. Let me, let me explain two things. Many people say, what well, the, the Arabs, there are not so many in, 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 in Europe, which is true. Um, in, in Germany, there's like four and a half percent Muslims and, and they're, they're not that many. But that's not true because a insurgency, <laughs> they can make it what's called an insurgency. Like that's a lot scarier than an actual army. Look at how the IDF, for example, in the six day war, which is only six days, we conquered Gaza in six days. Like we conquered Gaza. And by the way, the West Bank, Jerusalem, the Golan and Sinai in six days. But when you're fighting an insurgency, like we're doing now, when a random guy is okay, he's wearing a t-shirt until that moment, he picks up his gun over the car window that's a little too late when he's already pulled up his gun. It's a little, you, you, you can't, and Europe realized that they are, they're potentially going to be fighting an insurgency. If tomorrow Libya would want to start a war against, against France, France would crush them within, I don't know, seven days. But if it's a random guy called a Badala or a Mustafa, who is a truck driver in Nice, and you don't know un, until the moment he pulls the wheel and starts running people over, he was okay. That is much, 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 much scarier. I didn't need 3,000 terrorists to do 9-11. I needed a handful. I needed a dozen. I didn't need um, uh, 20 terrorists to come and carry out uh, when a truck driver runs people over Nice and France. I needed one truck driver, and that killed 87 people. It's enough. I mean, 15 terrorists can do things like the Bataclan, and and they see they see that Israel is relevant for them, meaning when a thousand uh, suicide bombers in Afghanistan in the past year and a half, they blow up Muslims, they don't care. It's not relevant. It's not perceived by their own local Muslims as the West is attacking us. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed in Syria. That's not relevant for the West because it, 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 it can't, it's not going to spark violence of their perception as seeing it as, oh, the West is attacking us, the Arab world. What's going on here in Israel, it could. It's perceived by their own local Muslim population as the West is attacking, is attacking us, the Arab world. And therefore, it can lead to crazy, crazy outrage. 
by the way, the correlation uh, about how much how much money they funnel into the Palestinians and how much Israel is mentioned on the media and how often they send their politicians into Israel, the correlation in Western Europe is not based on how anti-Semitic they are. It's, it's based on how many Muslim people they have, meaning Eastern Europe, which does not have a lot of a, a big Muslim population, even though they don't, even though they don't, uh, they don't have a big Muslim population, if, even though they're very anti-Semitic, they don't send their Anthony Blinken or the, his equivalent to Israel five times a year. While as in people in Holland or in Germany, they give more money to Palestinians and sometimes they give an entire continent of a billion people like Africa. I mean, those people are starving and, and Palestinians, half of them have Jeeps and every one of them has a cell phone. It's not really, <laughs> it's not that they really care about Palestinians as much as they see that it's relevant. When you see a picture, for example, of the West Bank and you see the complexity and you see Arabs living in Israel and you say, whoa, complexity, they look at that word and they don't say complexity. They look at it and say, they say, whoa, friction. Like one Israeli guy or a Palestinian can get a heart attack driving on Route 60 in Israel, knock into a van of 10 Palestinian people, and that can spark violence in France and violence all over the place. So we are relevant for them, and they are, and, and they are putting everything they can to do what I call like preventative medicine. You know, to try to make it, um, to try to make it that um, that 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 things will be quiet by them because we're relevant for their quiet. It's like a loose detonator of explosives in the Walmart full of explosives. It's easier to take that loose detonator out of the room than it is to carry out, you know, tons and tons of explosives out of the room. So we're relevant for them, and that's why they care, and that's why they don't care about any other conflict, and that's why it is. It is so, so important. Now you're going to ask me, oh, so why does Israel care about them? Israel should just say, okay, go fly a kite, dear world. We don't care about you. So Professor Dan Shiftan, who was one of the heads of the INSS years ago, he, this is all public. This isn't like secretive, you know, documentation I'm exposed to and you're not. This is all based on YouTube lectures. He, he, we need the, the world to deal with this country called Iran, which are really scary. And one nuclear bomb can, sorry, look like a joke, you know, if a nuclear bomb lands, God forbid, tomorrow in Khulan or Batyam, we're talking about 30,000 people getting killed and another 80,000 being wounded. We need the world to deal with Iran. Iran isn't one little country called Lebanon. It's a country of 80 million people with a nuclear plant dispersed all over the place. And we need them. And the world knows we need them. And they say, if you upset our Muslims, we're not going to intervene. And by the way, they say this not under the table, they say it over the table. And, and that might come and explain to you why Israel acts like, like worms with anything that might fall under the title of, oh, it might upset Muslims. For example, um, there was horrible discrimination on the Temple Mount. The Muslims have eight or nine gates and we have one. Why is there such discrimination? Because if we change the status quo, it might upset Muslims. Arabs build illegally. If you try building your closing in your porch in Ramat Gan or in I don't know Tel Aviv, within five minutes the government will come and knock your you know your your porch down or knock your wall off. Arabs build illegally in Israel by the hundreds of thousands of houses. Um, so it's 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 anything that might fall come under the title of might upset Muslims. 
Israel acts like a absolute sorry worm and 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 is held down by the world because the world sees it as relevant to them. And so so what I'm explaining until now sounds like a very deterministic thing like we don't we can't affect it and the answer is no we are the key. Like we who aren't in the IDF are the key. Because if the Israeli Arab conflict is the, in 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 the world's minds and opinions we, we can't join the IDF tomorrow and go into Gaza, but we can, we can change the world opinion. We can make them understand and say, listen, even if you don't like Israel, I, I don't care if you like Israel or if you don't, you could be an evangelical and you love Israel and you could be a neo-Nazi and you don't like Israel, but you better support Israel because if you don't support Israel and you appease the bully on the block, well, uh, 80 years ago in late 1930s, there was a Hitler called, there was a bully called Hitler and different communities in Europe were really scared of a World War II and they appeased the bully on the block. And we saw where that led. Like when Neville Chamberlain signed the Munich Accords with Hitler, he was genuinely, genuinely convinced he's preventing a second World War. He literally came and said, I hold the piece of paper that it prevented a second World War. He's seen 14 million people getting killed in the first and he really didn't want a second war. And everyone there in the crowd agreed to them. They all gave him a standing ovation. There was one Israeli, there was one professor, one professor, one politician there, Winston Churchill, that told him, you're an idiot. When you appease the bully on the block, you don't make him quiet down. You make him more, more hungry. You make him more of a bully. He said England, England had the choice between disgrace and a war and they chose, they chose disgrace and what they'll get in return is a war. Now, in, 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 we are today back in 1938. We have to convince the world opinion and say, listen, wake up. <laughs> this is at your doorstep. How many more Bataclan events do you need to see to realize that appeasing a bully is not going to quiet him down? It's going to make him more hungry. It's going to make him have a higher tavon, a higher appetite. And we are the frontline soldiers on that front. We can come and say to the whole world, both in the United States and definitely in Western Europe, <laughs> we can take movies which were already made about um, um, uh, uh, Muslim immigrants to the West talking about how much they don't like the West and, and make subtitles in, in Swedish and in German and in, and, in, and in French and stand up in front of all these politicians and fight for Israel and say, dear uh, public official, I will not just not vote for you if you don't support Israel. If you tie Israel's hands... I'm not going to support you, and I'm going to make sure everybody I know aren't going to support you. Meaning, once Israel doesn't have those zip ties holding them down, then they can function. And we are the most important people. We meaning those that aren't in the IDF. We're the most important people on this front. We're more important than the IDF people. The IDF people can do it with one-tenth of the strength. But we're the actual frontline soldiers. Now, I'll finish with one sentence. How can I prove that Bibi Netanyahu agrees with me? Bibi Netanyahu goes to the United Nations and says, Iran, 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 Iran. He also says one sentence. He says, I'm today's Winston Churchill. I'm the guy who's saying that if you appease a bully on the block, it's going to make him more hungry. Or he says, Israel's not going to be Sudetland of 2012. Sudetland is that part of Czechoslovakia that Hitler conquered. And, and the Munich Accords, they said, you can conquer the Sudetland of Czechoslovakia. And leave us alone, we're not going to intervene. He says, I'm not going to let Israel become Czechoslovakia of 2013. You think you're going to take a third country, throw them under the wheels of the bus, 
and say, just take them and just leave us alone? No, I'm not going to let it happen. And Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett and Lieberman and Benny Gantz and, and Gabi Ashkenazi and Eisenkot and every single, every single Israeli politician, I can give a number of quotations of them comparing Israel to Czechoslovakia or Sudetland or to, or to the reality in the late 1930s before Hitler uh, you know, actually went in and conquered Poland through the Sudetland. So maybe I'm wrong with my analysis, but I think if I'm wrong, all these, all these politicians are also wrong. So I, I really, I think they're right. I think it's very hard not to see. I think we have to diagnose the problem on why the world hates us, not just say, oh, they're anti-Semitic, which drives us to being passive about things, but, but, but rather saying this is a practical reason. There's actually reasoning behind it, and there is something that we can do in order to affect it. And we need to get up there on every single platform we can. And we need to persuade the world opinion not to let uh, Israel, not to force Israel to practice restraint, which is what they've been doing all the time. Because if that, if that is the case this time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's scary. If this time we have to, this will just be an upgraded protective edge and we'll have our hands tied on again, then I don't even want to think of the horrific implications are both to the world and to, um, and to uh, what's it called? Both to the world and, and to, uh, to the future of Israel. I mean, if we don't do it, the, the, the I don't know how do you say, the ashlachot, the, um, uh, it could be horrific circumstances. Um, so I, um, I'm going to finish now. If you guys want, I can try to tell you also the future. I'm not very good at predicting the future, but I can tell you what I think is going to happen. Um, and um, I'm opening the floor to questions. I, I, I just, I'm going to say it again. I think that you are more important than people in the IDF. And I really full-heartedly think it. And, um, and, and, and I hope that you go and, you, and you're motivated from this and you say, okay, I'm not going to dedicate all my time to it. No, you have a job, you have kids, you have a life. But say, I'm going to be on social media, I don't know, one hour a week. Or I'm going to write letters to politicians one hour a week. I'm, I'm going to do something about it. I'm, I'm not going to just share different videos of Stand With Us or a million other advocacy organizations, which are all planned for the sentiment of people in the West. I want us to also come in and not only touch our sentiment, <laughs> that's also important, but also touch our reasoning and say, listen, you better support Israel because if you don't support Israel, that's, that's, that's going to be horrific for your kids. Do you care about your kids? Yes. So regardless to whether you like Israel or not, <laughs> you, you should do the right thing and you should trust you, you should stand with Israel because the implications of not doing it could be horrifying for, for your future and for your children. Um, so I'm going to finish now. Thank you, Eitan. Are you with us? I'm going to open the floor to questions. So now is the point where I invite everyone to drop their questions. I told you, Jonathan, I need 35 minutes. I'm in 36. Um, and, and I'll open the floor to different questions if people have bit uh, my ability. Great. So I'm going to take everyone's questions. If you have a question, please drop it in the chat. And in the meantime, first of all, um, Eitan, I assume we'll get some of your predictions as we make our way through the through the questions. 
Let's start with Uri. He wants to know, don't you think that the main anti-Semitism in Western Europe doesn't come from locals? That is why we that is why we see it more. I think it also comes from locals and it also comes from 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 Muslims. Um, I've no doubt that the crazy uh, rise now, you know, 500 times more in the past few months. Obviously, that that's that's for Muslims, but but it's also rising because nationality is rising. Um, in my opinion, um, I think that it's shrinking by locals, um, meaning <laughs> I see um, I see uh, a different uh, right wing parties in Europe, which I would expect them to be more, sorry, neo-Nazi and national. And a lot of their voters are neo-Nazi. They're actually supporting Israel. They're they're flagging Israel's flags on the their parliaments or on the Eiffel Tower. So I, I do see that it's a lot more from, from Muslims. And I do see that the local people, even if they're more national and they're more anti-Semitic, I think that they understand in a very healthy way that their risks now are a lot greater from their local Muslim and immigrant population more than more than they are from Jews. So that's personally what what I think. I don't think it's all, but I think it's it's mainly from from Muslims living in the West. Okay, interesting. A question coming from Roni A. What about the moderate Arab countries like Jordan and Egypt? Don't they stand with Western civilization against the extreme countries and the Muslim brother brotherhood movement? So it is not a clear cut clash between <coughs> Western civilization against the Arab Muslim countries, which is what Huntington suggested. And I can add in that, you know, I'm speaking with Egyptian friends that talk about what a big effort Egypt did to eradicate terrorism on their fronts. So can you speak to what Arab the Arab countries around us are thinking and and what they feel? Okay, I I didn't start with this, but I'm going to I have to say this. I, I have I have no credentials. I mean, if you if you want, I've I've a master's in Middle East studies, but my credentials are not what's important. Common sense and listening to people is what's important, and I I I've lost every little drop of 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 uh, of appreciation that I've had towards um, academics or heads of intelligence or IDF colonels. Um, it all went down the drain on the 7th of October. I think a random 12-year-old girl in Shiloh or in Efrat uh, analyzed reality a little better than the chief of staff of the IDF. And I think uh, a lot of us have seen this. So the problem with, with Jordan and with Egypt is that we have a peace agreement with the governments of them, but not with the people. The overwhelming public, and I'm talking about in Egypt, it's about 90-something percent. And in Jordan, it's about 70 percent. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood is a very, very popular movement. And I know the Muslim Brotherhood is against the law in Egypt, but the people there, Muslim Brotherhood is a movement, and it's the most popular movement in the Western world today, including in Jordan and Egypt. Um, in, in Jordan, where they are legal, it's one of the leading parties in the, in the, in the parliament. So we have a very, very fragile agreement with these countries that – that's with the with the with the uh, how do you say anaga the um, the leadership of these countries, but not with the people, and that's very scary. By the way, after Morsi took over um, Egypt, he was gonna he was taking steps towards the canceling of our peace agreement that we had with Jordan. So 
yes, the governments of those countries are secular and they share values together with the West, but, but that's not the people. Um, don't, uh, don't confuse the fact that if you have a secular governor who wears a suit and a tie, then the people agree with them. Um, you had uh, in the Arab Spring in a nutshell in one sentence is the religious peoples in the Muslim countries overruled the secular ruler of those countries. That's, that's in a nutshell. The overwhelming majority, and this is true in the Western world and in the Muslim world, became more religious over the years. I, I can't affect it. I can just analyze it and describe it. And, 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 and the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a religious party, is by far the most popular movement in both in Western countries and in the Arab world. And it's a lot more popular than than the governments of these countries. So do we share values with the governors? Well, the, those rulers of, of Arab countries realize they need the West to stay in power. But don't confuse that with the sentiment of the public. The, the sentiment of the public is is highly, highly toxically anti-Semitic. Okay, thank you for taking that. Uh, just responding to Alicia. We are going to be posting this recording in the uh, Jewish Matters podcast, so you can get the audio there. That's Rabbi Feldman's podcast. Um, I wanted to know, how do you recommend that we respond to people or explain to people the mass killing of Palestinian <coughs> civilians, and how do we deal with the global community's outcry that Israel is committing a genocide. And I ask that very specifically because I'm a journalist and I'm doing a lot of public appearances. And these are the top things that I am needing in need of responding to the general public. Night and day um, is trying to combat that Israel intends to wipe Palestinian people out of Gaza and that we are a genocidal country. And um, and just, you know, reconciling with the, the large number, the thousands of Palestinians that have died since since the operation started. Um, okay. If Israel wanted to carry out a genocide in Gaza, they would have done that within one day. All they needed was, I don't know, six or seven batteries of artillery, about 30 trucks of shells, and there wouldn't be a living human being, lizard or mosquito in the Gaza Strip. That's if they really wanted to make a genocide. Um, how, why are Palestinian innocent non-combatants dying? The answer is very, very simple. Hamas is manipulating it, using them as human shields um, and building a storage place for rockets or shooting from inside a hospital or a school and then and using those civilians or those kids around them as human shields. I mean, every single uh, terror tunnel leads into a random house. So if I bomb that house, if Hamas either forced those people to stay in the house with gunpoint or they volunteered to stay in that house, in that house then obviously they're going to get killed. But who's to blame? Israel that is begging them for like two weeks already, please flee. Please head down south. We don't want to kill you. Or Hamas that actually wants them dead. Like when they hold up dead babies, that's a manipulation. Don't let yourself be manipulated. The people, who's, the people who are really responsible for, for that baby dying are not Israel that's doing everything in their power to refrain, begging, making phone calls, dropping pamphlets, giving two weeks of time please leave. We don't want any babies to get killed. No, the people that are actually guilty of that baby dying are the Hamas that are asking him, please stay. And we know that Israel is dropping new pamphlets. 
because Hamas themselves say that. Hamas themselves are saying, don't follow those pamphlets that the IDF is dropping, asking you to leave. We need you to stay. Meaning we need the pictures of the dead babies because that's what's going to buy us worldwide legitimacy. So ironically, yes, babies are dying. Yes, people are dying, but they're not dying because of us. They're dying because Hamas fully 100% took advantage of the of, of people in Gaza as, as human shields, built all their tunnels and their storage places of rockets and, and everything. You name it. I'm an intelligence now. Every single target we're picking up, we're saying we found this here. We found this there. We see this here. We see this there. Every single one. Not every single one. I'll, I'll be careful. 99% <laughs> are in schools, hospitals, or mosques or random civilian houses. So what am I supposed to do? Just sit there and getting shot? If people would be shooting at you and your family when you're driving a car coming back from Walmart, and that person, after he shoots you, would just go right behind behind five or six children, would you not shoot him? He's standing there with an RPG aiming at you, and he's got five kids around. It's either you or, or him. I, I don't understand what is Israel exactly supposed to do, just let their citizens get killed? Like, what, are, what, are, what do you expect them to do? I, I hear you. I understand. It's it's just um, to the to the global community. It seems so outlandish. And I'm I'm arguing with people on a daily basis who say that's not true. Uh, we don't believe <coughs> in it. So it's just um, it, it seems so ridiculous because it is so ridiculous. And it's just really tough to uh, to defend. Shauna, I, I don't think I personally I'm I'm, I'm a big lover of. Uh of the content. I don't like the way Ben Shapiro wraps up his stuff and presents what he's saying, but I like the content of a lot of what he sells. And he says, listen, if you argue with one of these people, you're not going to influence what he thinks. A, a guy who is uh, holding posters, you know, uh, for Hamas in, in New York city or Washington, you're not going to affect him. No matter what you say, even if you show him the Hamas is the evil of all evils and Israel's the good of all goods, he's not going to agree with you. What you want is to affect the 20 people that are looking at him who are bystanders in a college campus and the media, <coughs> and you want to affect their opinion. There's no point in wasting time, sorry, on convincing, I don't know, Muhammad from Boston University or from Harvard that Israel's great. He's not going to be affected. And if you think you found that one guy, as Ben Shapiro says, you can go after your lovely argument with him and ride your unicorn off into the sunset. Um, it's not going to happen but you can influence the people around him and you can come and you can say, oh, genocide? Israel is doing a genocide in Gaza. So how does that work with the fact there are double, the population doubled itself since Israel occupied the, the Gaza Strip? So how does that work with your claim that there's a genocide? Like, there was, like how does that work? Life expectancy went up from 67 to 77 years. That's higher than Jordan, higher than Egypt, higher than Romania. How does that work with your claims that we're creating a genocide if the population doubled? I, I just simply don't understand this. And if you throw it back to him as a question and, and, and you make him look like an idiot, again, you're not going to affect him, but you can affect the 20 bystanders around him. Thank you so much. A question from Luisa Grower. I have met Iranian Muslims when I was in graduate school, and they complain here in the United States that we can't or won't persuade Canada to label the Iranian Guard as a terrorist organization. If Western countries don't want to upset Muslims, shouldn't they be tougher on Iran? 
wow, Iran is a very, very complex story because as opposed to as opposed to Egypt and 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 uh, I don't know Yemen, Egypt, Libya, almost every country that I know, Syria, where it's the religious peoples overthrew a secular government, Iran is the opposite, meaning it's a very religious government that overtook a country which is in the revelation 1979 that is overwhelmingly a lot of different minorities in Iran. But if I want to draw generalization, a very healthy society and very progressive one. And I mean, again, this is not as progressive as in Boston, but, you know, in, 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 in Arab and Middle Eastern terms. So in Iran, in a way, it's like a country that was hijacked by a fanatic religious cult of people. So it's, 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 it's a challenge in Iraq, but yes, we need to persuade governments and, and we're the, we're the frontline soldiers. Nobody's going to do it. If not us, we need to tell people, not just in the Canadian government, but in the American government. I mean, you bring Ahmadinejad who openly calls for genocide against the country to the podium on the UN. How does that work? I mean, explain that to me. I, I, I just cease to understand. I just don't. If I would say I call for genocide against all Palestinians, let's nuke them all, kill every single baby and whatever. Would you invite me to the UN <laughs> to give a speech the next week? How does that work? And and people don't like seeing hypocrisy. If you come up there and you and you and you flash them with the simple truth that they are being very hypocritical. Again, you're not going to uh, with with political people. I feel that they care. I feel the politicians they want to stay in power. And they want the people to be happy. And if they see the people aren't happy, if you persuade all the people around you that this is not okay, that politician will have to <laughs> take action based on what's expected of him politically. Okay, thank you so much. Um, moving into Maytal's question. If you say all our biggest politicians know and agree on that, why don't they do it? Why don't they continue bombing Gaza instead of what you suggest, like simply show their prisoners are humiliated? Show how wow. their prisoners are humiliated. What do you mean show how their prisoners are humiliated? I don't understand the last part of the question. Tell, this is the, yes, because um, I read what Aiton said on his Facebook, like um, the, the Palestinians care more about being humiliated than than to die. So, like I said, okay, so it's very easy. Why, if the, all the politician knows that, why don't they use these methods instead of going and bombing Gaza, which the whole world hates us for anyway? Okay, I can, I can give 20 examples, but the answer is anything, whatever Israel has to do, has to fall under the title, may upset Muslims. Again, it doesn't matter how I want to deter you from doing something bad. Let's say if you're a billionaire and I tell you, I'm going to give you a 20 shekel fine for speeding or a $5 fine for speeding. You're a billionaire. You don't care about $5. I have to find a way to deter you in a way that you actually care about. Now, the ways to deter Palestinians are, again, they're a lot more creative than I just said. Like, for example, close the temple mount. For example, embarrass a guy. He is willing to die and his whole family die before you post a picture of him, sorry, wetting his pants in, in the interrogation room of the Shabak, of the Israeli CIA. Um, he cares more about, you know, about that kind of stuff. Now, why aren't we doing it? That's exactly why, because it, it, whatever we want to do that would achieve the goal of deterring him, 
by definition, is something that he cares about. And if I go and I deter them, again, it doesn't matter how I do it, but anything that would deter them or would, it has to be something that would upset them, sorry, and anything that would upset them by definition could wait, start World War III around Europe. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Meaning, by yeah. definition, so anything we need to, anything. Eitan, you put yourself on mute. See a, um, they see a potential of, of it out making their own Muslims. Sorry, wage a huge balagan. And I'll give you one example to how this balagan could be costly in Europe. I don't think the Muslims in Europe are going to start World War III tomorrow, but I think they can start an insurgency. I'll give you one example. If 13% of London are, are Muslims, 13%. Um, and let's say 13% of Heathrow, I'm just throwing an example. Let's say it has 10,000 workers or 20,000 workers in Heathrow. 13% of 15,000 workers would be what? 1,700 guys? 1,700 workers. You know, the guys who stamp your passport, the guy who loaded, uh, uh, I don't know, luggage onto airplanes, the guy who cleans the airplane, the guy who fuels it. If one of those workers, I'm not saying all the Muslims are violent. God forbid, no. But if one out of a thousand is outraged because of what we're doing in Gaza, and it doesn't matter if it's dropping um, pamphlets of girls in lingerie on the streets as a response for them shooting rockets or bombing buildings and, 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 or changing the status quo on the Temple Mount, it doesn't matter. By definition, if one of, those, one of those workers, just one, is outraged and he leaves a burning cigarette on a Dreamliner airplane, I don't know how I didn't check on eBay, but I'm assuming a Dreamliner costs a few hundred million euro. And if I if one cigarette that costs, I don't know, a tenth of a euro can cause damage of hundreds of millions of euros, then you suddenly understand the magnitude of the fear. If they have something that they cannot deal with in Europe and they realize this openly, and at the same time, the implications are so huge. Then, then, then you become neurotic. You do everything you possibly can to quiet things down in, in, in the Middle East. Bibi Netanyahu was trying to tell them, listen, you have North Korea, you have Russia, you have so many other things in the world that can cause instability. Israel is not the only source for instability. Correct, we're one of those things, potentially, and you better take the right side on this one, or it'll be very bad, but there are so many things that can cause instability. Israel, you're, neg you're neglecting every single other aspect and just focusing on one? That's, that's not smart. So, Eitan, I think that uh, what I'm seeing in our chat is that people are looking for some practical <coughs> things that they can take with them. You know, a lot of the people that are here with us don't necessarily have media training or maybe it's not their forte, but they feel a fire to respond to people and specifically the Olim community. We're all coming from places where we have huge networks of non-Jews. And I think a lot of us feel misunderstood, frustrated, and like we really want to get our message out. So we have two questions that I think are similar that I'd love for you to take to wrap us up. One is related to, to a different question. Are there any particular sets of resources, packs of information to share that can help us better battle people online? 
And then Maytel, following up to her previous question, wanted to know, what can we do? So maybe you could just leave us off with some practical, you know, sentences or phrases or whatever you have in mind for what each of us can do. Okay, so the number one thing, um, look, there are thousands of books about Israel advocacy. There's one that I recommend more than any, any, any other book. And, and I can't say this. I know people might not agree with me, but I have my one-time favorite. Um, it's called The Industry of Lies by Brandor Yamini. I'll, I'll write the, in the description, uh, Jonathan, so you can send it out. The Industry of Lies, Tafsiyat Ashkarim by Bendror Yamini. Bendror, exactly, The Industry of Lies. And I'll tell you what's good about that book. He, he addresses the media and academia, our two sources of notif- notif- uh, Bendor Yamini. Yamini is his last name. Bendor is the one name. It's his, it's his first name. It's a weird name um, and very uncommon. Um, so, so what he addresses, exactly, yeah. What he addresses is he addresses both of our sources that we get our information that we feed off of, which is the media and academia. And he just literally, sorry, wipes the floor with them. I'm sorry for the uh, shallow term. And, and what he gives the readers the understanding, exactly. There you go. Maytel is holding up. Uh, it's, it's also in English, obviously. Um, he has a lot of lectures on, uh, on the internet. And Hebrew is a phenomenal speaker. I'm going to say something sad. I wish he would speak with less of a heavy accent. He has a terrible Israeli accent. So if, if it doesn't bother you, then great. You can watch it on, uh, on podcasts and uh, on YouTube. Um, and if not, you can just read his book. What it gives you is the confidence when you stand in front of a person who sounds and he quotes professors and he quotes media outlets. Okay, you sit there with your hands crossed and you say, so what? Like, so what? Some of the stupidest things I've heard. And it gives it gives the reader the confidence that when he stands in front of somebody who looks very confident and he gives short, simple examples and he says, you want me to take this seriously? The, the Guardian newspaper mentioned Israel like what? 1,008 times in 2011, there were 125 Palestinians killed. That same year, there were 4,000 Iraqis killed. That's 40 times more than Palestinians. And the Guardian mentioned Iraq less than half the times, 500 times. You want me to take the Guardian newspaper seriously? You don't see their obsessive, you know, their obsession, obsession with Israel? I'm sorry. No, I, I, it gives the readers the confidence which which is very much needed when you when you deal with these <laughs> with these claims and what do, what can you do with these actual claims i i don't have a smart suggestion besides get social media you know it doesn't matter if it's facebook or instagram or anything else and just watch a few simple tiktoks and a few simple things you can listen to uh different uh podcasts with different people that address this like Dennis Prager, like Ben Shapiro, like, I don't know, uh, Charlie Kirk, like, um, what's his name? I forgot his name. Who wrote The Strange Death of Europe, Douglas Murray. I mean, that, that they address in a, in a very, in a very, um, one second, a friend from the army, Chayel Pachy. Chayel Sorry, a long friend I haven't seen for, for ages. Um, and, um, so, so that gives you the understanding of how to combat these things, the actual substance. Meaning if somebody from, again, from your work, from your background comes and addresses you, the industry of lies gives you the confidence to deal with it. And then when somebody throws a question, it doesn't pivot you out of balance. 
and and the and the and the actual substance uh, again i can i can write a list of different sources but i'm sure i'm sure it's very easy anybody can write to me by the way i'm the only eight on run in the world on facebook or instagram my whatsapp number is 0546266896 and i answer every single person that writes to me uh, with different questions i might answer in, in a voice recording and not in text because i don't have a lot of time but but uh, i'll be happy to answer everything if somebody combats you they say oh israel ethnically cleansed palestine 1948 tell them listen then how are they are israeli how are their arab israelis how does how does that work how does it work that with every single arab village that you give me i i can go within five minute drive or if i'm going to walk I'll find an Arab village that's still there. I mean, if we ethnically cleanse them, so why is Nazareth there? Like, oops, we missed 30,000 guys. Like, oops. Um, you, you know, like, it, it, it's very easy to combat these things, but that book gives you the confidence and the substance, again, is very easy. You just watch these little short clips even or listen to uh, Dennis Prager for five minutes and... Uh, uh, or Ben Shapiro, and they'll give you a whole uh, magazine full of uh, a weapons arsenal, how to deal with these uh, different uh, different claims. Well, Eitan, thank you for bringing us that reference. And and Benjro, by the way, uh, lives in Nevet Sedek, and I've met him many times at synagogue, and uh, he's a great person. So thank you for suggesting him. Perhaps we'll have to ask him to come and speak for us at Tribe Tel Aviv. And thank you so much for giving us so many new perspectives and avenues to explore and think about that maybe many of us were not considering previously. And uh, we're so grateful for your time. Yes. I'm so sorry to break in. So sorry. I'll say one last thing. It's in our hands. It's in our hands. We are the frontline soldiers in this arena. And more than, more than we need the IDF, the IDF needs us. And if you were asking, how do we do it? If you can't, do, make subtitles in German. And if you can't, so find a company, go to 20 of your neighbors together and sponsor this. You don't have to do it yourself. Sometimes taking avenues of financial things, like helping these people out, is a great thing to do it, is, is a great way to do it. Like, like it doesn't have to be us ourselves. Um, you, you, you can reach a, a, a silent majority of people by, by making subtitles in Swedish or subtitles in German. It doesn't have to be you directly. You might not be the most charismatic person or the most technologically person advanced, but you can, you can get somebody else to do it, but make it happen. Push the wagon. Sorry for disrupting. Thank you, Eitan. Thank you for bringing us your mes- message and inspiring everyone. And I totally agree that it's important to feel confident when you feel confident and you feel centered and you know who you are. Everything else is is just a matter of skill or or learning something new. So uh, thank you so much, Eitan. And uh, we really send you a lot of hatzlecha in your role and uh, for you to have a very strong week ahead. Thank you very, very much for having me. And that's Lacham, Israel Chai, and good luck to us all.